we find ourselves in Job chapter 18 in a message that I'm entitling, Tales from the Dark Side. I think you'll see why in a moment. Job chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then Bildad the Shuhite, this makes him the shortest man in the Bible, because he's only Shuhite. No, I'll I'll stop that. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you put an end to words, gain understanding, and afterward we will speak? Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight, you who tear yourselves in anger? Shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or shall the rock be removed from its place? The light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. The steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road. Terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved, and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent and the parade, and they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. His roots are dried out below, and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. And he has no name among the renowned. He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He has neither son nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Those in the west are astonished at his day, and those in the east are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. I need to draw you all the way back to the beginning of the book of Job and the theme of this book. Remember the theme of the book is why does a loving God and a righteous God permit the godly to suffer? And we sometimes want easy answers to the problem of pain, the presence of suffering, the presence of difficulty. We know that suffering can come from Satan in Job chapter 1 and 2. We know that it can come from the activities of ungodly people from 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 14. We're aware that we live in a broken and a fallen world. All you have to do is look around. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 8. That even as believers we are sometimes subject 
to our own evil inclinations in, in our own wickedness, our own fallen nature. We learned about that in Romans chapter 7 as we saw the, the war that went on inside of Paul's heart of the flesh and the spirit. And since the source of suffering can come from one or all of those places, and since suffering can sometimes purify us or petrify us, it should cause each and every one of us to approach the subject with caution and sensitivity. When we find people in our family or our friends who are in distress... Now remember, we've looked at Job's difficulties in chapters 1 through 3. And we saw Job's defense in chapter 4. And we'll see it all the way till the end of chapter 37. We've been through the first rounds in chapters 4 through 14. And now we find ourselves in a series of second rounds of arguments and counter-arguments. We heard from Eliphaz in chapter 15 and Job's reply in chapters 16 and 17. And now we hear from Bildad, the Shuite. Remember, this is the man with the tongue of a dagger. He is the voice of tradition. He is a person who cuts to the quick. He takes no prisoners. And again, as we make our way through the book of Job, we discover the question of suffering is complex and the answer doesn't come in a simple or a pat way. We've been introduced to Job's accusers. We've been introduced to their arguments. Remember what each and every one of them believe. God afflicts the wicked. Job is afflicted. Therefore, Job is wicked. And Job points out that sometimes the wicked seem to prosper. Sometimes it doesn't always seem that there's a one-to-one correlation between what you do and then what happens to you. And so, Job points out that sometimes it would appear that the wicked prosper. And here in chapter 18, Bildad pictures the fate The destiny of the wicked as a light going out in verses 5 through 6. A bird who's caught in a snare or a trap in verses 7 through 10. A criminal who is being hounded and chased in verses 11 through 13. A tent that is being torn down in verses 14 and 15. A tree that's been dried up by its roots in verses 16 and 17. And so Bildad basically begs Job... To be reasonable in verses 1 through 4. Bildad thinks that Job has simply reacted to his grief and he's not being reasonable. He's just out of control. And once again, Bildad assumes that Job's sufferings are linked to Job's character. And so Job maintains his innocence. And again, he's suffering and he doesn't know why. And he's ruled out secret sin or unconfessed sin as the reason. And his pain and his isolation and his grief grows worse. We see a man who's broken 
and bearing what seems like an unbearable burden. And in their own misguided way, I suspect, I believe, that if we could get Eliphaz and Bildad together, if we could get his friends in a room and we could say, why are you doing this? What are you thinking? Why are you saying this? They're going to tell you that they really love and care about Job. That they're trying to get Job to a place where he will expose this hidden sin in his, in his heart because they suspect they're scared to death that he's going to die at any moment and he's going to have to face God with an unclean heart. And if he cleans up his heart, he might return to health and he might return to prosperity. Or at least with a clean heart, he would be prepared to meet God. And so the questions that Bildad asks has as their goal to expose personal guilt before God. Look what it says in verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long till you put it into words? Gain understanding and afterward we will speak. Bildad in effect is saying, When will you stop talking? When will you start listening? At what point will you stop being so defensive? And will you listen to reason? From Bildad's perspective, remember, Job has been argumentative. Job has been belligerent. Job has been uncooperative. From Bildad's perspective, he had to convince Job to repent so that the restoration process could begin. Bildad knows that Job has accused his friends of being long-winded. And now Bildad accuses Job of abusing his privileges, speech privileges. Now, again, I want you to put it in, a, in terms that hopefully all of us can understand. Imagine that you go to a hospice. And for those of you who don't know what a hospice is, it's a place where the very, very sick go, and usually they go there to die. Usually the only thing that they have to look forward to is that they're going to be dead. Now, imagine a person in hospice care unburdening his or her heart, begins to say everything that's going on on the inside as they're trying to talk, they're trying to explain, they're trying to explain their life, and you say, shut up! Just be quiet! Do you understand just how rude that is? Telling someone who's terminally ill to shut up? And in verse 3, Bildad says, why are, we, why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? Bildad remembers what Job has said. Remember, Job thinks that he's wiser than his friends. And he, Job has charged his friends with being like ignorant cattle. And Bildad t- took that kind of, what are, you, what are you saying? You're accusing me of being a cow? And not even inviting me to Chick-fil-A or giving me a gift card? Bildad took the rebuke personally. Job's friends 
do seem to have a kind of a herd mentality, don't they? They sort of gather together. They're building on each other's arguments. They're trying to get Job to confess to wrongdoing and repent. And by the way, three against one. And if a person comes into the room and says, we're going to have an intervention. And this next person comes into the room and says, we're going to have an intervention. And the third person comes into the room and says, we're going to have an in- intervention. In, in many, many people's world, the majority rules. But what happens if the majority are all wrong? What if each and every one of them have misunderstood? What if the majority don't really know the truth. Bildad is willing to counter that if you reject the sum of wisdom found in all of the friends, that you probably don't even know God when you come to the end of the chapter. So in a few phrases, Bildad will accuse Job of abusing his speech privileges, of exalting himself. Look at verse 4. You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or shall the rock be removed from its place? You may not understand what you're reading, but Bildad remembers Job's charge of God tearing him to pieces in chapter 16, verse 9. You may have forgotten, but in chapter 16, verse 9, he he says, He tears me in his wrath, and he hates me. And Bildad says, The only reason why you're messed up is it isn't God who's messing you up. You're messed up. It's your anger. Your anger is tearing you to pieces. He charges Job that his real problem is that he's unwilling to come to grips with what his real problem is. In one sense, Bildad believed that Job's anger towards God was tearing himself to pieces, eating away at Job. And so Bildad says something that sounds on the surface to be really helpful. You got to just let that anger go, Job. You got to let that anger go. And the, accusi- the accusations continue to pile up abuse of speech, self exaltation, anger, but also arrogance. Look at the end. Or shall the rock be removed? From its place. It's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language. It basically means did God or will God or is God supposed to forsake everyone else on the earth? The picture is Job, do you think that God's just going to drop everything that's going on on the earth and go, oh, wait a minute, here's Job, and and I'm going to just drop. Everything that I'm doing, and I'm going to come to Job's rescue, which is really interesting when you read the first few chapters of Job and you think about all that's going on on the earth, and it's God Himself who draws attention to the magnificent character of Job. Hey, you know, where have you been, Satan? Going here and there and doing this and that. Have you considered my servant Job that there's not anyone like him on the earth? It's hard to be on our planet and We live in a world that's very much media-driven. A story comes. A story goes. And so when he says, Or shall the rock be removed 
from its place. He's using sarcasm. The idea is you move rocks to meet need. Did Job expect God to change the way he deals with human beings just to help Job? Is God going to move heaven and earth? You've probably heard that expression. I'm willing to move heaven and earth to help you. Or someone would say, do you think God is going to leave heaven and come to the earth in order to rescue you in the circumstance that you find yourself in? Would God move heaven and earth just to help Job? Was the earth and everything in the earth, all of the needs to be abandoned just to help out Job and his suffering? Bildad is in effect asking the question, Job, do you think that you deserve special treatment? You've probably heard people say stuff like that. Well, you know, time out, there's seven billion people on the planet. Do you think God's going to just stop everything and help you? You want God to come down from heaven and explain what's going on in your life? Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer? Lord, I just, time out, Lord. I just need you to come down and explain to me what's happening in my world. It sounds ridiculous when you put it that way. Bildad likens God's justice to an immovable rock, a stone that won't change, even for Job. Bildad sees himself as the keeper of tradition, the fount of truth. And as McKenna puts it, quote, he wouldn't hesitate to send Job to the stake and wield the torch himself. It's his way of saying, if Bildad had the ability, he would sentence Job to a stake Surround it with wood and place him on fire. Bildad's first and second speech have a singular goal. To reduce Job to tears. Or silence. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where the whole point of the conversation was to get you to shut up or make you cry so that the conversation couldn't continue? That's what Bildad is trying to do. As horrible and as terrible and as awful as it sounds, because it is awful. And I think that part of the point of this passage is, again, to get us to be careful, to get us to be gentle, to get us to say, am I being really careful about what I say? Am I being careful? Am I being accusatory or comforting? Am I trying to impart strength and support? And then Bildad lets it all hang out. He puts it sort of in the third person. He talks in terms of the wicked in general terms. But everyone knows he's talking about Job. He says, consider the fate of the wicked. Look what it says in verse 5. The light of the wicked indeed goes out and the flame of his fire does not shine. Note, he doesn't say the light of your light is about to go out. Your flame is about to expire. But that's exactly what he means. Bildad uses vivid pictures. The imagery is profound. He speaks of the darkness of death. 
He, he draws a picture of the fate of the wicked. His home is dark. The lamp beside his bed has gone out. We might think of this again in modern terms. In other words, once a wicked person dies, the lights go off at, at his house. The scripture suggests that the wicked die for two reasons. Number one, strength begins to fade. Their strength rapidly declines. Second, the evil that has been committed over the course of his or her life begins to take its toll, to accuse, to haunt, like a runner being chased by quarry. So in verse 6 it says, the light is dark in his tent. Why? Because he doesn't even have the ability to make the light shine. And his lamp beside him is put out. That means the source of light next to the place where he's sleeping. The steps of his strength are shortened and his own counsel casts him down. In the Bible, darkness is a kind of a metaphor for sin or rebellion. The Bible says the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness doesn't understand it in John chapter 1 verse 5. And so clearly the darkness of evil can't extinguish the light of God's love. We know that darkness seems powerful, but the moment that you put on a single light, the darkness begins to scatter. And that becomes a picture of God's love and the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is the true light. Jesus removes the darkness of sin from our, our lives. And the gospel writers basically said that in the world we lived in a dark place. But Jesus comes and he is the light. Darkness is opposed to the light. Light represents what is good, what is pure, what is true, what is holy, what is reliable. Darkness represents what's sin and evil. And the darkness can be defeated by depending on the light of God. And so the Bible gives us a mechanism where we can deal with darkness. The way that we as Christians deal with darkness is we remind everyone about the reality of the light... And then darkness can be defeated by depending on God and defeated by obeying God's word. The psalmist wrote, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path in Psalm 119, verse 105. So Job, remember, in an earlier chapter said, they change the night into day. It was a picture of their lying. They'll say that light is dark and dark is light. And Bildad accepts the analogy and then turns it on its head. He basically says, what's happening to Job is proof that he's the one without light. He's the one whose flame has gone out in verse 5. Bildad counters with, hey, it's no wonder that you think that we're in the dark. The reason why you think that we're in the dark is because you're seeing us through the darkness of your own circumstance. The reason why I'm telling you this is because it becomes an important insight for each and every one of you who ever has a single conversation with an unbeliever. And they become upset and agitated when you talk to them. 
When you bring up these metaphors of darkness and light and of salvation and goodness and grace and mercy and they get mean and they look at you really weird like, who died and made you the keeper of all that's good and, and knowledgeable and true? What is happening is Bildad really is in the dark. But have you noticed that people who find themselves in a dark place don't want to be there by themselves, so they'll accuse you of being in the dark place. But there's something going on. There's something going on inside of them. There's an accusation. I, I remember reading Francis Thompson's poem about, about people who were running away from, from God, running away from the gospel, running away from the light. Francis Thompson wrote, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him. Down the arches of the years, I fled him. Down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up vistaed hopes, I sped and shot, precipitated. Adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after but with unharrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. It's a poem about a person who's running from God, running from their conscience, running from the light. But people who are running away from God and They're running away from the accusations of their own heart. They're running away from their own conscience. Do they ever outrun the invisible voice that's speaking to them from the inside? They really don't. Bildad says in verse 8, For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. In other words, he describes death. Death is like a net or a pit that's stretched out across a path that that can't be avoided. He sees a picture of a human being walking in a particular direction on a particular path. And on that path, there's something that you can't avoid. Death is like a trap. And the moment that you walk on top of that trap, it's going to swallow you. Death holds its victims. It can't be avoided. Death is like a trap that snaps quickly and swiftly. And death holds its victims bound like a noose. Death holds its prey and refuses to release. In a sense, Bildad is saying, Job, you're suffering. Job, death is right around the corner. Job. Unless you clean up your act and unless you confess your unconfessed sin, you're going to die. And you're not going to have a clean heart. You're going to experience a premature death. You're going to have to face God and you're not ready. And then Bildad says, the net takes him by the heel and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground. That's the invisible trap. A noose is hidden. It's the dirt is covered up and he walks on the trap and a trap is set for him in the road. And so now he describes the wicked. The wicked are frightened by death. So from verse 11 all the way through 21... 
There's a series of images, and I'm going to go through the images quickly and then look at them quickly. Look what it says in verse 11. Terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. Bildad becomes like Edgar Allan Poe or Alfred Hitchcock or in our own culture and society, that creepy person, M. Night Shyamalan. He's creating this dark picture of all that is terrifying. And you're going to note something. He is going to suit his speech exactly to Job, exactly to what Job has already said. It's as if he's taken Job's circumstances and he spins a tale of horror and terror. In verse 12, his strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent and the parade, and they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. His roots are dried out below and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name among the renowned. He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He has neither son nor posterity among the people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Those who are in the west are astonished at his day. Those in the east are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. That's the terrifying conclusion. He doesn't anguish for his friend. He doesn't consider his friend's claims. Bildad is going to say something awful. At the end, he basically consigns Job to the dwelling place of fools who don't even know God. As far as Bildad is concerned, the conversation is over. The debate has ended. Job's not even a Christian. Job doesn't even know God. Now again, think about what you just read. Verse 11. Death stalks our steps. Now again, this is a very, fairly persuasive thing to say. If in fact you are wicked. If in fact you are wicked and you don't know God... Is it true that every single person is going to die? Yeah, that is is true. Bildad points this out to try to persuade Job to confess and repent. What he basically points out is something that is under most circumstances true. Do wicked people, by and large... Are they terrified by death? I think that the answer is yes. They may put on a brave face. The wicked might say, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid of what is going to happen. But I don't think it's true. You see, the wicked, if they're willing to lie 
about almost everything. Doesn't it make sense that they would lie about that? Bildad basically says the wicked are terrified by death because they can't control the loss of strength. So the picture that Bildad is painting is of a person who is sick, really sick. And they used to be young and well and and now they're getting older and their strength is starting to fail. and, And the things that used to be things that they could rely on, they can no longer rely on it. They can't rely on their own strength. And the disaster of death is like a lion waiting to pounce on the prey in verse 12. It says his strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. The picture is is an animal waiting to claim its prey. Death is ready, eager for Job's demise. And so the wicked man is terrified by death because the disease is eating away at his once healthy body, eating away at the healthy tissue, ready to devour Job's limbs. That's what it means in verse 13. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of of death devours his limbs. In other words, when a person is getting progressively, progressively more and more weak, they can't move their extremities, hands, arms, legs. Bildad is using Job's awful disease to scare him. And then the wicked man is terrified by death because he's torn away from the security of his home and He's forcefully presented to the king of terrors in verse 14. Look what it says. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent. That means where you used to live, the safety of your own home, you can't be there anymore. And who's the king of terror? I think you know the answer. What is the answer? Death. I think it's, it's safe to say Satan is the king of terror because he is the person who presides over death. But that's what he's talking about. The king of terror in this particular instance is death. And so Bildad is making reference, I think, to Job's tragic loss of his wealth and of his children. And so he says, the wicked man is terrified by death because of disease. The wicked man is terrified by death because he's torn away from the security of his house. The wicked man is terrified by death because his home has been doomed to fire and brimstone. Remember, they dwell in his tent who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. Do you remember how his children died? There was a storm. And the wind knocked over the house. And lightning fell from the sky. Job's sheep and servants were consumed by fire that fell from heaven. Do you remember if you go all the way back to Job chapter 1, verse 16. For those of you who have forgotten, it says, And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up the sheep and his servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Bildad is saying, you know why that's happened? It's because you're wicked. And that the wicked man is terrified by death because he's wasting away. He's decaying. He's dying. Remember, Job himself describes his life wasting away. The last signs of his lingering life being taken from his body. And so Bildad describes his death like A beautiful tree that is all of a sudden starting to wither in verse 16. The branches dry up and the leaves fall off and the trunk is eviscerated and the roots begin to die. Job, in an earlier speech, compared himself to a tree. And Bildad says, Job, you are like a tree. Dried up, shriveled, withered, eviscerated, wasting away. And the wicked man is terrified by death because of the memory of his life fading from the earth. And that he will eventually be forgotten by everyone. And so Bildad plays on the worst of the worst of the worst fears. That each and every person has. Can you imagine someone coming to you on your deathbed. And looking you in the eye. And and say to you. No one's going to remember you when you die. Everyone's going to forget. That you ever existed. Your wife will die. Your children are dead. No one will remember you. Isn't that a horrible thing to say? And you know what the irony is? The irony is that you have your Bible open to Job chapter 18. His story is alive. His story is living. His story is remembered in every generation. And I know how discouraged sometimes you get. And I keep encouraging you. Keep reading the book of Job. And keep reading it over and over again. And make sure you read the end of the book over and over again. When God shows up. Redeems and reconciles and vindicates him. By the way. If you ever play Bible trivia. Do you think most people will remember the name Job? Do you think it's a little more difficult to remember Eliphaz and Bildad? Especially if they ask you, how tall was he again? And you go, hmm, he was shoe height. That's right. And the wicked man is terrified by death because he's being driven from life. Remember, if light represents that which is good and pure... It also represents life. And so Bildad says, you're going to face the ultimate indignity in verse 18. It says that he is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He has neither son nor posterity among his people. Nor any remaining in his dwellings. In other words, Job, when you're dead, there's nobody who's going to live in your house who's going to remember who you are. They're going to all be gone. Death is the ultimate 
separation, the ultimate banishment, the end of life. Remember, the Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. The very biblical definition of death is separation. And we know physically that means the body and the spirit become separate. But really, the picture is more than just a physical picture. There's a spiritual picture of separation because of sin. And so the wicked are terrified by death because they have no children or descendants left in the household in verse 19. And Bildad, again, he sticks the knife where it's going to cause the most amount of harm. And the wicked man is terrified by death because people everywhere are horrified when they see his fate. That's what it says in verse 20. Those in the West are astonished. Those in the east are frightened. The picture poetically is, imagine here you are in Littleton, Colorado. And you drive as far east as you can, and you drive as far west as you can. And you go through Kansas, and you go through St. Louis, and you make your way. And all of a sudden, you, you run out of room, and you come to the very edge of the east coast of America. And people look around, and they say, did you hear what happened to Job? You drive as far west as you can and you come to the California coast and you hear the words, did you hear what happened to Job? How how does that happen? Sometimes it does happen even in our own culture and society. Some of you may have heard the newscast of, I want to say his name is Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? He was nominated or he won an Academy Award. He was found dead in his Manhattan apartment with a needle sticking out of his arm. I guess they found some 50 bags of heroin. Did you know that Joel Rosenberg went to high school with this guy? Joel Rosenberg, who is the New York Times bestselling author, who's frequently here and a friend of our ministry, he went to high school. Now imagine you're in high school. One of you is going to be an Academy Award winning author. And one of you is going to be a New York Times bestselling author. You're in the same high school class. And one day, it's reported that they find your body in your apartment. And the emptiness and the darkness and the loneliness. And people begin to talk. Yeah, he had a drug addiction. Yeah, he was sober for so many, many years. Yes, he fell off the wagon. Yes, he relapsed. And, and unfortunately, when he relapsed, he, he relapsed in a big way. And people from California to New York, from Minneapolis to Florida, everybody says, did you hear what happened? That's what Bildad is saying. For Job, did did you hear what happened to him? Job has admitted that people are horrified and, and repulsed by his appearance. Job has already admitted, people see me and they are scared. People see me and they warn their children to watch out or they're going to wind up like Job. And Bildad sums up his speech by stating that all of the things described in verses 11 through 20 would happen to the ungodly, the wicked who don't know God. Their destiny is the grave. And with that closing argument, Bildad takes again a stab and he twists the knife. Because what what he's basically saying is, because Job 
doesn't even know the truth about his own condition, he probably doesn't even know God. You know, it's interesting. It's a great speech. But it's to the wrong person. Is there an appropriate speech that could be given to a person who is running from God, who is hiding from God, who is wicked and refuses to live a life of friendship and fellowship with, the, with God? Does the Bible actually have a whole lot to say about what's going to happen to the wicked? The answer is yes. Remember, Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter to the kingdom of God, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils? And in your name, we did many wonderful things. And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You worker of iniquity. In Matthew 13, it says again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered every kind, meaning a fish, which when it was full, they drew it to the shore, they sat down, they gathered the good into vessels, but they cast away the bad. So it will be at the end of the world, the angels will come forth and sever the wicked from the just. The Bible describes a time in human human history when the wicked will be placed on one side and the righteous will be placed on another side and God will invite the righteous into his very presence forever. In Matthew 25, 46, it says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Bildad gives the right speech to the wrong person. And we need to be careful, don't we? That we give the right speech to the right person, but there's something else that we have to include. It's not just the right speech to the right person, it's the right speech to the right person With the right motive. You see. If your motive. Is to accuse. Humiliate. Degrade. If. You're trying to bring a person. To tears. In the hopes that you will get them. To shut up. If the mechanism that you use is abuse and insults and unwanted advice, then the problem may be that you're giving the wrong speech to the wrong person with the wrong motive. Does the Bible have a lot to say about what will happen to the unrighteous? Yeah. But does the Bible have a lot to say is going to happen to the righteous? Yes. It's a comfort. 
You probably repeated it over and over in your, in your mind. Psalm 23, 4, remember? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I won't be afraid because you're with me. You lead me. You guide me. The Bible says that the Lord is the one who can lead us through this thing that we call the valley of the shadow of darkness. You see, only one person can really lead you safely through the door of the shadow of death. Jesus. He's the shepherd. And the door. And the resurrection. No wonder the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 23 through 28, specifically in verses 27 and 28, he says, Just as man is destined to die once and then to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sin of many. And after that, To face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many people. And he will, he will, he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin. But to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. He's describing you. He's describing you. He's describing you if you are a person who loves him. Who identify with him. Death is unavoidable. So be prepared. We will die physically. Barring the rapture. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear. No one has to die spiritually. The saving work of Jesus. Prepares us for the future. And Jesus defeats death for us. No wonder Paul would write. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? For sin, the sting that causes death, will be gone. And the law which reveals our sins will no longer be able to judge us. Satan appeared to be victorious in the Garden of Eden. Satan seemed to have the upper hand in the affliction of Job's body. But God will turn Satan's apparent victory into a terrible defeat because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus so that the believer never, ever, ever has to be afraid of death. We're going to have communion in just a moment. But that's what communion really is all about. It's a picture of Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And no wonder the Bible says, do this and when you do it, remember me. And for us, particularly after going over this particular chapter of such A difficult speech that Bildad gives to a person who deserved none of those accusations. We need to be able to talk to our family and our friends who are terrified by death. 
that for the wicked and the unregenerate, there's a healthy fear because death is the final consequence of sin and separation. But the reality is for the person who knows and loves Jesus, the psalmist is correct when he writes, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. And so for each and every person who knows and loves Jesus, you have an opportunity to fall asleep and wake up in the arms of your father. We're going to pray. We're going to hand out the communion elements. I just ask that you would keep the communion elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your love and for the sacrifice of Jesus which guarantees that death will not have the final word, that death will not have the final say, that when the nurse or the doctor or the friend or the family member whispers painfully, he's gone, she's gone. It's not the final word. It's not the end of the line. It's not the closing of the book. That Heavenly Father, we have life and hope and friendship and fellowship and relationship because of Jesus. And so Heavenly Father, again, we pray that you prepare our hearts. As we partake in communion, Lord, we pray that you would search us and like the psalmist, that you would try us. That, Lord, you would see if there's any wicked thing that's inside of us. Lord, that you would reveal it to our hearts. That we wouldn't conceal it from our conscience, but that we would confess it and forsake it. And, Lord, we pray that we would be willing, 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 willing to be used by you. That, Lord, when the Holy Spirit points to a man or a woman a friend, or a stranger and says, love that person, care for that person, speak to that person, tell that person that I love them and that I care about them and that I have made arrangements for them to be saved. That, Lord, we would be faithful. That we would speak when you tell us to speak. And that we would refrain from speaking when you tell us to be quiet. And that we would always, always, always have hearts filled with compassion and sensitivity as we minister to people in pain. In Jesus' name. Amen.